Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder joining us from London and definitely a very interesting story here that and that he has to share. Uh, we're going to be talking quite a bit on fintech and, and building, scaling, I mean, you name it. So I guess without further ado, Daniel Hegarty, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. So born and raised in London. So how was life growing up? How was life growing up? Yeah, I mean, if you've spent any time in London, it was uh, a lot of rain, a lot of talking about football, a lot of eating bad English food. Um, but yeah, no, good, good. I'm, I still live here, so it can't have been so bad. And I'm sure that a lot of fish and chips. But uh, but anyhow, I know that that you were partially raised by your grandparents. So tell us about this. Yeah, that's so that's right. So I was over the years, sort of my my, my parents and grandparents kind of tag teamed on looking after my brother and I, which I think. I mean, in the context of, a, of an entrepreneurial journey, I think was quite was quite important. Um, they one was Czechoslovakian. My grandfather, my my mother was uh, my grandmother was from Vienna, and I think that that kind of sense of uh, a sort of otherness and of, of not being kind of bought bought in or invested in in the sort of British status quo definitely affected my thinking about like my career and and how how I went about building businesses. And they were refugees, so obviously the migrant business, the migrant uh, mindset was pretty much there, you know, from the early beginning. So how would you say that that has influenced who you are today? Yeah, I mean, so they were they were both um, uh, Jewish and, and obviously sort of chased out in the in the occupation in the Second World War. So no, I think I think it was a few things. I think one was this, yeah, like a, a general sort of sense that like whatever you were going to make in the world, you were going to need to make yourself. Um, as well as a sense that anything you had made could uh, could equally be taken away from you at, at any moment, um, but also yeah, I, I guess some of that kind of like the, that that natural hustle, if you like, of like of, of how how you're going to figure out how to fit in in a foreign country in a foreign context without understanding all of the the implicit rules. Um, and I think you know, particularly for me in, in my current business, uh, where, where I'm again, we're in the mortgage business. So I didn't know anything about mortgages before I started this business. Um, I think I think that kind of mentality gives you the courage to try those things. And then obviously at 16, something pretty big time happened. <laughs> yeah, so I was in this pretty, not terrible, quite quite bad uh, punk band uh, all the way through school. And uh, yeah, we, we, we got a record deal. Um, and so obviously like faced with the choice between sort of doing my A-levels in English and maths and going out on the road with my band, uh, it was a pretty easy decision. <laughs> 
Um, and yeah, that was the sort of beginning of about yeah about nine or ten years uh, for me as a as a professional musician, uh, both here in the UK and, and over in the US. So were you guys going after the record deal, like knocking on doors, or did this just happen like out of the blue? No, we got we got discovered uh, by actually uh, like an agent, a manager um, who uh, who then yeah shopped us around for our, our first deal, and um, yeah we had this like re- like modest sort of radio hit <laughs> in the UK um, that kind of uh, sort of set us up for a good run, and that band imploded as all teenage bands do, and and then I yeah for me it then kind of I transitioned into doing quite a lot of session musician work, uh, being in some other bands, um, doing some work for film and television, uh, and a number of other things. And this was in Los Angeles. So, I mean, how was uh, how was life there? And then also, I mean, you, you dedicated like nine or ten years to this. So so what what were some of those key lessons that you got from that? Yeah, so we I ended up in Los Angeles in my early 20s uh, with sort of the next sort of big band that, um, that I, I kind of invested a couple of years in, which was, yeah, like a pretty formative experience for me, to be honest. So obviously, it was my first time, like, you know, out of the UK for a significant period. Um, again, it was me and two guys had gone out there together, literally with like, just with our instruments. And actually the drummer couldn't even bring a drum kit. <laughs> um, so, um, and we kind of were, you know, literally, I remember on our second day sitting in a cafe and being like, right, we need like instruments, somewhere to live, a car, a lead singer, because we didn't have one. Then we need to find a manager and a record deal. Um, and it sort of began this, yeah, this kind of couple of year journey of us, of us trying to figure that out, which, as you can imagine, like, sounds a little bit like, uh, what, what a startup is but instead of i guess record companies you've got vcs um and you don't stop growing the sort of employee count at three or four or five people you you just keep on going got it got it so so then what happened then after the nine years you know that that really got you thinking into maybe it's time to pack the bags and go to london it was it was a few things really like it'd been like you know to be frank like I wasn't so tremendously talented that it was <laughs> like it was uh the, there was no challenge in it um, and, uh, and most of the music that like I wanted to make, most it, it appeared people didn't really want to listen to. So I guess I was kind of faced with, you know, and I remember particularly being sort of the, at the airport going off on tour and seeing some of the other guys I was playing with who were maybe 10 years older than me saying goodbye to their kids for, what, eight or nine or 10 months as they went off on tour. Um, and I just, I guess I was just conscious that like the, the kind of the career of like a jobbing session musician um, was going to be tough and like it was never it was never going to stop like it was always going to be buses and airplanes and, and being away um, and so in, in truth actually like I came back to the to the UK just you know just for some time out to, to have a think about options and I really kind of stumbled in uh, to my first job in, in fintech um, and didn't really expect that I would stay kind of anticipated that after a few months or whatever I, I would be back make, making music but yeah, it turned out that I was like a massive like closet geek. Um, and as soon as I, I was sort of let loose in fintech, um, I never really looked back. So tell us about this, because I mean, it's it's interesting. So you dropped off from school at 16. So it's not like you had the the curriculum, you know, of, of Oxford and and, you know, all these like crazy universities and, and, and titles and things that, you know, would dress up the CV. So. So how do you go, you know, to convince someone, because this is like a massive shift as well for you uh, into a completely new industry. So, so I guess first, how do you stumble across fintech and then how do you convince the right people at the right time to give you a, to give you a shot? So it's, it's kind of a funny story. So it was actually a, somebody who remains a very good friend of mine, uh, a, a, a corporate lawyer uh, called Tina Baker, who, who does a lot of the angel. She's now actually retired, but did, did a lot of the angel and series A rounds um, in London over the last 10, 15 years. Um, 
who she also had like a second life. So she, before that, she was a, a pop star in New York in the eighties and then was an opera singer and all sorts of things. So I actually knew her from music, nothing to do with business. Uh, and I came to London uh, and I came back and was like, listen, like I've got no qualifications. Um, I really, I need a break. I want to try something different. Like how, like, how do I get a grown up job? And she was like, oh, it's funny. I just met this guy who I think might be crazy enough to hire you. He just, he just raised some funding. Um, and so she introduced me to the founder of the first company I worked at, a company called Wonga. And he and I like just hit it off. Like after 15 minutes, he was like, listen, like, I think you're a smart guy. I think you can add some value. Um, I started two days later and that ended up being like a, a six, six year journey for me. That's amazing. And obviously here you were uh, running all types of stuff for them. I mean, from credit risk and analytics to new products to, I mean, you name it. So, so how was that? That, that that steep learning curve for you from like all of a sudden like here you are someone gives you a shot and you have to like learn all of this you know stuff from 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 the ground up yeah it was honestly it was just incredibly exciting for me at the time i remember just being like i, I, it's, I laugh now but i remember like putting the first hundred pounds into our google adwords account and being given the like the web analytics login and being like amazed at all this data i could find um, and then actually, yeah, my, my boss at the time said, like, I had, could spend as much money on Amazon on, on books as I wanted. And so I was just sitting there, like, you know, reading books on like linear regression and doing the machine learning courses at Stanford in the evenings. Um, yeah, it was like, it was just crazy. It was like this whole part of my brain I'd never used before. Um, and I was just suddenly surrounded by like very, very brilliant people, like quite sort of an intellectually like combative environment. Um, and I just I really thrived and I absolutely loved it. So in this case, I mean, I know that for you, one quite an event that you had to live through with Wonga was uh, having the church not very happy with you guys. So what was what was that? Yeah, I mean, so Wonga's an interesting story, right? So I was whatever the fourth or fifth or sixth employee, um, and then you know, I guess over the next few years, it went you know from from nothing to being over a thousand people in nine countries, lending to consumers, lending to businesses, doing point of sale credit, all kinds of things. Um, but ultimately, like it was, it was, you know, I would definitely say it was in the high cost sort of short term credit space. Um, and, and it, you know, we were spending, God, I don't remember now, but 30 or 40 million pounds a year on marketing. So it was, it was a very famous brand, like it really attracted a lot of attention from, from politicians, from the media more generally. Um, and yeah, at one point, the, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury decided that like, he didn't think it was a great thing. And he came out in the press and said that actually the church was going to compete directly with Wonga to try and serve the same uh, customer segment, um, which was, yeah, it's honestly like, you know, sort of funny in retrospect, but at the time, like it was kind of made us feel pretty sick. You know, we'd been, we'd all invested thousands of hours of our life into building this product that we thought, you know, could have a positive impact on the world and, and having the church say that it couldn't was pretty disturbing. And then the, the sort of, you know, you couldn't make it up. Um, the next day it then emerged that actually the church was an investor in Wonga uh, through a couple of our VCs. Um, and this wow. came out in the newspaper and the archbishop had to sort of walk it back. And yeah, it was, it was a pretty crazy time. So what did you deal about, you know, what, what did you learn about, let's say, PR crisis management? Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think we learned that like, ultimately you have to sort, sort of stick to your guns um, and be, be clear about what you're doing in the world. And, and listen, don't get me wrong. And, you know, I don't want to make this all about Wonga, but, you know, I think, I think there were some, you know, like Wonga's not a simple story and not everything that Wonga did was perfect. Um, and I think, you know, like, I think if you're in, you know, usury and money lending more generally, like it's always going to have, the, you know, the complexity of what do we do about the people who can't repay and how do we treat them in an, an empathetic and fair way? 
Um, but I think, yeah, I think I think this is the reality. If you're building a big brand in this space, and we see it, you know, in, in every in every kind of growth fintech brand, like at some point, like the media is is going to be upset with you. In the UK right now, you see with uh, Monzo, incredible business, like Tom, an incredible founder. Um, but every second story in the newspaper is something negative about you know, how they're dealing with AML or if their new product doesn't work or if the founding story is problematic. And, you know, that's just the nature of things. And I think you just got to be tough and, and, and sort of tough it out. <clears throat> so, Daniel, then, in this case, obviously, you know, at one point you decide that it's time for you to, to, to do your own thing, to build your own baby. So tell us about how the idea of Habito came to mind and how you brought it to life. Of course, yeah. So I, I guess, you know, the, the thing I'd really like, you probably hear from how I described it, like I loved the first couple of years of Wonga so much, like when it was a smaller group, maybe a little bit more familiar to me because it was a bit more like being in a band. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I very much wanted to repeat that experience. Um, but there were a couple of things in my mind. One was that like I wanted to have like, you know, control over the culture um, and to make sure that I was building a place that I would be excited to work at. Um, and also I wanted to build a product that was like completely aligned with our customers outcomes um so there wasn't any contention and kind of you know difficulty in figuring out what was the right thing to do in any given situation so you know i was sort of fortunate i guess as you know i guess founders sometimes are and that i had a really terrible experience um I, I went to buy my first house um and i had this kind of comic experience in the uk where and, and i should say in the uk um mortgage brokers are very uh, prevalent so about 80 percent of mortgages are arranged by mortgage brokers you don't you don't tend to go directly to your bank um, and my mortgage broker made this like horrible mess of, of me buying my first house where it's kind of funny he, he made the application to the bank and on the application he included me um, my partner and my partner um, and so like 10 days later 10, 10 days later the bank uh, rejected the application on the grounds that I was a polygamist or a bigamist or something um, so then he realizes his error he takes uh, I'm like please can you fix this like we're going to lose this house so he then takes me off the application and just includes my partner and my partner again so another 10 days pass the applications declined again and you know in the end like you know the sellers were going to pull out it looked like the whole thing was going to fall apart and in the end we, we figured it out but I, I, it was for me this incredible insight that like that the whole mortgage industry was essentially like people passing buckets of water to each other and with zero technology, zero transparency about process. And I guess even more than that, actually, for me, considering I'd, I'd already been in financial services for quite a few years at that point, I was really just struck by how sort of disempowered and confused I was in the process and, and how little, you know, innate knowledge the, the, the kind of the, the typical house purchaser has about, about what home finance entails. Um, so, yeah, so I, I've kind of felt like I'd stumbled, stumbled over this kind of broken thing in the world. Um, and so set about the process of thinking about how to fix it and how about how to raise funds. And, and that was the beginning of Habito. Yeah. So for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Habito? Like, how do you guys make money? Oh, I see. Um, yeah. So there's, there's really sort of two things that we do primarily. So firstly, we are a digital mortgage broker. So we kind of compete with those guys who made a mess of me buying my house. Um, and so essentially customers come to us uh, on the internet. Uh, we provide them with uh, mortgage advice. We find the the, more, the right mortgage for them. And then we go ahead and make the application on their behalf and process that with the lender. Um, so we're free to the customer, um, but we're paid a proportion of the mortgage uh, by the lender. Um, and then on top of that, we do a couple of other things. So one, we uh, so last year we became a mortgage lender ourselves. So we have some of our own uh, sort of full stack uh, products where obviously we make money in the usual way uh, by charging interest and fees. Um, and then also we have like a premium home buying product called Habito Plus, 
um, where we not only arrange the home financing, but we deal with the legal work, we deal with the appraisal of the house, and we kind of orchestrate the whole transaction. Uh, and for that, we, we also charge a fee. Very cool. And obviously, one of the key areas of, of really building a meaningful business is really understanding how you get to your customers and, and really acquisition channels. And I know that for you guys, you know, it, it was a little bit bumpy, especially when it came to, to really understanding, you know, that television is probably not the way to go. Well, it's interesting you say that. So I guess we, again, like most sort of, I think, fintechs, maybe tech companies in general, we were doing what everyone was doing. So we were spending money on Google, we're spending money on Facebook, we're like doing tests with other channels. And it was working okay. We were getting enough volume to kind of learn and build. Um, but our, you know, our customer acquisition cost, our, our CAC was just, was just too high. And so we kind of realized quite early on that if we were going to build a, a very large business in the space, we were going to have to build a brand. And you can't really build a brand on Google. Um, so sort of with that sort of insight in hand, we were like, right, so it's time to make our first sort of TV advert and put our money where our mouth is and go above the line. Um, and so we, we made this, God, it was, looking back, I, I don't quite know what we were thinking, but we basically make, made an advert trying to explain to people what an algorithm was <laughs> and how our algorithm would help them find the best mortgage. And, uh, you know, we spent several hundred thousand pounds, you know, all in uh, on this TV campaign, very exciting, went live nothing like uh, like we're all watching the web analytics like not even a bump <laughs> on our traffic wow. let alone like any any mortgages getting sold so we're like head in our hands wondering what we've done and we try re-editing it and we do a different media buy different channels and still like absolutely nothing um so we kind of go back to the drawing board like sort of you know a little bit despairing and, and actually just at that time thankfully uh, we were hiring our first cmo um, and I had this same this conversation with her at the time, which was like, listen, like I, I believe that to, to build build a brand in this space, like we're going to have to be on television to build trust and to build uh, notoriety. Um, but what we're doing isn't working. And, and I think the, the kind of the realization we had together was if you want to be like noticed on television, particularly in this space, which is like conservative and boring, like you're going to need to be brave, like really brave. Um, so the kind of my brief to our CMO was, look, I want you to go away and make a new advert and a, like a, a new media strategy. And I want you to make me really uncomfortable. Like I want to feel like deeply scared <laughs> about what you're doing. Because <laughs> otherwise, like, if, if I'm not scared, like no one's going to remember it. Um, and she did an amazing job. I mean, I was really terrified. So she came back um, and essentially the, we made a, a new uh, set of adverts. The, the, the pitch is hell or habito. So hell is the old way of doing it. All of those feelings of disempowerment and confusion and jargon and getting ripped off. And obviously on the other side is us, it's Habito, the, the kind of the bright future. Um, and the way we kind of dramatized that was essentially like animated cartoons of people being like attacked by mortgages, like disemboweled, drowned in vomit, like uh, like sweating so much, they drown in their own sweat and mortgage piranhas come and eat them. Like, I know it sounds completely crazy. <laughs> um, and that was the pitch. Um, and that was what we did. Um, and we made, we put the first advert out, I guess like near two years ago now, and it was completely transformative for our business. So we went from like effectively 0% brand recognition to 10% brand recognition nationally with the most recognized mortgage brand in the country. Um, our customer acquisition costs came down by like 350%. Um, wow. It has become like the primary kind of uh, growth engine uh, for us as a business has been this, this creative platform. So huge, huge learning experience for us. And, and I think the most important thing I would say is that I was really worried that like people would just think we were like showing off or trying to win like marketing awards. Like, you know, what has this got, got to do with like making the best decision about buying a home? 
And I think the reason it worked was because it had a basis in empathy. Like, I think it actually wasn't just us saying how cool we were. It was actually saying, no, listen, we understand that this is an unpleasant process and you feel like you're being ripped off or like things aren't being explained properly. Um, and because the kind of the creative or the, the drama of it was based in that, I think that's why you know our customers responded to it. Very cool. And obviously, um, a business like this is is quite different to venture. So um, why is it different? And, you know, I guess, what, what was that process for you? like? So different to what did you say? So, for example, in this case, I mean, you got to raise, you had to raise all this money for for the lending side. Oh, right? yeah. So um, so tell us about what was that process like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's so obviously we had we've had to raise like a, a lot of venture capital, as you would imagine, like most sort of high growth fintechs. But because we wanted to move into the, the lending space as well, um, we also had to raise a, a, a huge amount of debt capital. Um, so we'd have enough kind of dry powder to lend. And as you'll know, well, I'm sure your listeners know well, like, you know, venture capital is, is effectively like an iterative process. So, you know, you define your hypothesis, you get to the early stages of product market fit, you show the right growth numbers, show great unit economics, and, and you kind of prove your point iteratively over years and, and raise these capital in, you know, multiple rounds. When you're trying to raise, you know, for us, what was 500 million pounds worth of mortgage debt, you don't get to do any of that. Um, you can't like build a, you know, minimum viable product and test it in the world. Like you have to be 100% ready to take complete ownership and fiduciary responsibility for this huge pile of money. And so you have to build your whole lending platform in advance. You have to build all of your risk and governance and compliance teams that are going to sit around that and control it in advance. Um, and only then and only then, so which for us was a couple of years into the process, do you get to go out into the market and try and convince institutional investors that they want to bet big on your platform. So that was something we did last summer. Um, and, you know, bearing in mind, this is also in the middle of Brexit, um, which has been a pretty, pretty challenging sort of, sort of episode of uh, Britain engaging in self-harm publicly. Um, yeah. But we uh, we got there in the end. Uh, we got there in the end after like about nine months of kind of grueling, grueling uh, interrogation of what we built. Um, and we were, yeah, a we're incredibly proud to have done it. But also, it really like you know the, the level of diligence um, really makes you grow up as a business and realize like what it means to be like a serious kind of global financial institution. So even though it was pretty painful and like <laughs> it wasn't that fun at the time, I actually think it was an incredibly positive experience for us as a business. That's amazing because you've you've raised on the lending side what seven hundred million dollars. It's about that, yeah. I forget whatever it's five hundred million pounds, whatever the exchange rate is. Got it. And then on the equity side, from from investors, how much have you raised? I think it's about eighty million dollars. Very nice, very nice. Uh, and obviously, you were able to see the the incredible growth of Wonga, right? And and Wonga had raised also quite a bit of money too. I mean, over over a hundred million. So I guess the, the, the question here is based on your experience with Wonga, when you were added here and, and you knew you needed to raise money, I mean, what were some of the aspects that you were looking for from investors? Because obviously money is not everything. It's, it's who is giving you the money and how you can leverage their networks. No? For sure. Yeah. I mean, and again, um, and because Wonga had a sort of tumultuous ending, I, like I also saw some of the downsides of, you know, when, when investor relationships kind of go bad. Um, so I was, yeah, I was incredibly focused, maybe too focused on on finding investors like who I believed were like super high integrity and were good people who I could trust and would be there in a, in a down scenario. Um, so we, we were incredibly fortunate and have raised money from like, you know, some of the, the best investors in the world. But I think I was also lucky that uh, for, for the majority of them, I was also like I had a personal relationship with them that had gone back a few years. You know, they'd met my kids, I'd met their kids. Um, and I felt, yeah, that made a big difference to me. Like I really like 
particularly because I'm a, I'm a solo founder. Um, so I don't necessarily have that kind of natural person to talk to within the business. I think I was probably more reliant on the sort of trusted relationships that I built with uh, some of our board members uh, early on in Habitat's history. Absolutely. And I, and obviously now COVID, you know, has been as well quite, um, you know, quite a bumpy, you know, for, for everyone. I guess, how has it been for you, the whole COVID experience and for, and for Habito? Yeah, it was, to be honest, it was very tough. Like we were right in the middle of, uh, of raising our Series C um, and, you know, effectively in the lockdown, the, the housing market in the UK came to a complete stop. Uh, you know, um, realtors couldn't show people around houses, um, surveyors or, or appraisers couldn't go around and value houses. Um, so we went, you know, our revenues, which some of it is refi, so that carried on, but like dropped by like 70, 70 to 80% um, at, at the worst point. Um, and suddenly, you know, and obviously when that happened, we none of us had any idea how long that was going to go on for, you know, whether it was going to be three months, six months, two years. So, you know, I guess me and many others, we, we had our kind of nuclear apocalypse financial projections where we were trying to work out how long we could survive, at, you know, at very low revenues. Um, some of our, you know, yeah, the Series C, like, teetered, you know, with a couple of investors getting very nervous. Um, we were we were lucky on a number of fronts. So firstly, I think we we responded really fast um, and looked at our cost base and made sure that we were, you know, we were being like really, really realistic about what the, re what the rest of the year could hold and how we could protect ourselves. Um, also, as I said, like you, you find out from your existing investors, like who's going to be there for you in a down moment. We had a down moment. Um, and we were incredibly fortunate that all of our investors showed up both kind of with time and with their checkbooks um, to help us out. And then on the other side, um, the market rebounded much quicker than we'd imagined. So actually it was, the market was only really shut down for nearly just under three months. Um, and it came back with a real, with a real boom. Um, so we were able to close the Series C. We were sort of back at record-breaking months within just three or four months from that, that real bottom of the, bottom of the curve. Um, and it looks like, you know, God willing, you know, no second waves and further lockdowns. Um, that yeah, the business is kind of going from strength to strength. So touch with that continues. That's amazing, and I'm sure that for you, you know, that was that was that was pretty nerve wracking. But I'm sure that you learned quite a bit too as a founder. And and one of the things that I wanted to ask you here is that when you're dealing with a moment like that, I mean, such a such an impact. I mean, it's it's hard, you know, not to you know start thinking the what ifs and to have those voices, you know, and to go into like this toxic type of like rabbit hole. Like, how was that for you? How did you deal with that? Like, uh, yeah, I, I'd like, I wish I could say I was, I was impervious to it, but no, like I was definitely having the, like the 3 a.m. wake ups where, you know, where I was in, in all hands explaining to the business that we'd run out of money, all, all the, all the usual kind of horrific nightmare stuff. Um, do you know, the, the, the one thing that I did that in retrospect almost seems a bit crazy, but I think actually showed some wisdom was we, I kind of had this moment of realization that, and it's, it sounds like a strange thing to say, but, you know, a bit like when you break up from your long-term partner or you, you lose someone you love, you know, where the kind of floor falls away underneath you and suddenly like every different version of the future seems possible. I kind of felt like yeah. COVID was that for us. Um, and so actually what we did, like just sort of a month after lockdown was we did as a, as a senior leadership team, we all got together and just did like a really deep strategy exercise where we like, were like, we examined every kind of like piece of received wisdom and precept of our strategy and like really stress tested it and made sure we still believed it because the world had changed. And so, you know, I was just super conscious that like if our strategy didn't change, then perhaps that suggested that we weren't being sort of mentally agile enough. And so that process that took us, you know, we, we did it over two or three weeks, um, made some like some not like 
totally earth-shattering changes, but killed off a couple of product lines that had been stuttering for a while, doubled down on some bets that we really believed on in for the future. Like, I think it was, it was incredibly valuable for us, like not just in terms of like taking the opportunity to rethink the future, but also in like finding each other in that process. Because obviously we've all been physically dispersed into our houses, um, but it allowed us to have like some really sort of deep and challenging conversations about the future of the business. And, and I really sort of, in the months that followed, I think it gave us a great platform for, for kind of growing out uh, of the crisis that we'd, we'd experienced. And talking about the future, Daniel, so imagine you go to, you go to sleep tonight. And you wake up five years later. So tremendous news, right? <laughs> and you wake up in a, in a world where the vision of Habito is, is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, I mean, it's a lovely thought, particularly because I've got two kids under three. <laughs> so missing a few years with those two sons <laughs> would be amazing. Um, but no, I think, listen, for us, the, the vision is the same. We want it to be incredibly easy for people to buy houses. We think like home ownership is a, a huge driver of happiness in the world and of value in, in the economy. And at the moment, like it is still, even with our best efforts, like largely kind of brought about by legacy institutions on legacy technology with a bunch of processes and, and laws as well, actually, that really work against the consumer. So I think, you know, like our sort of imagined future would be that we're at the center of many, many more transactions, let's say the majority of transactions. And the decision to purchase a house is as simple in the UK as, as finding a house you want and asking us to, to arrange the purchase. It's just a few clicks. Um, and actually by kind of creating that central hub of like demand on the one side and supply from the mortgage market on the other side, we're reducing costs for everybody and therefore driving down mortgage rates and the cost of, of home ownership. Very cool. Very cool. So I guess for the folks that are listening to get an idea on the size of Habito, I mean, is there anything that you can share on perhaps number of employees or anything else? Sure. Yeah. So we're about 150 people now. Um, I think it's public. So I think, I think we're originating something like two and a two, two percent of, of all of the mortgages in the UK. Um, so we're like a reasonable scale, like multiple multiple billions uh, annualized. Um, yeah, that, there's some headlines. That's amazing. Good stuff. Good stuff, Daniel. So, so now I guess as as you're looking back and and you know quite a quite a journey, you know that uh, that you've been through. I mean, from playing in a in a band, you know, touring on buses and all over the world, from you know that to joining fintech, you know, experiencing massive scale and now even doing it again now you know for you for your own baby with habito i guess as you're looking back and and maybe you know like you had a chance to to speak with your younger self with that younger daniel that you know perhaps you could give that younger self one piece of business advice before launching a business before launching a company what would that be and why knowing what you know now jesus that's a really good question it's deep (laughs) (laughs) i think there's Look, I think it's two things. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to do two things. So Go for it. The first is like the thing that is going to sustain you through like, like founding a business, being in a band, founding a business is tough. Like anything worth doing in life is incredibly tough and it's going to require infinite amounts of energy and grit and determination. So like make sure like you really deeply give a shit about it. Like don't end up in like, like an industry that you're like half excited about or selling a product that you're only half excited about. Um, and I think, I think that varies. For some people, that's like, whether it's making exciting software. For, for me, it's really simple. Like I, I really care about consumers and like the journey that we can go on with them. Um, so I would be terrible in B2B, for example. Like I'm, I'm 100% a B2C guy. So I think, I think trying to get to that level of kind of self-knowledge as early in your career as possible, like will save you a lot of heartache. Um, and then the other thing I would say is like, just 
bear in mind, like your investors, your senior, like senior leader, leaders, you're going to work with co-founders. Like these are relationships you are going to be in for years, maybe decades. Um, so really like focus much more on like integrity, people like you can imagine spending a thousand hours with rather than like who's got the best CV or like, you know, who's kind of like the best salesman. Um, because, you know, for me, certainly like the, the transformative effect of Habitat has not been its growth. It's been like the incredible relationships that I've built with the, uh, the people I've built it with. Got it. I mean, that's very, very profound, Daniel. So thank you. Thank you for sharing this. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's DH underscore Habito. Um, I'm always very happy to hear from everyone. Um, and if you need any help and you're in the UK with uh, buying a house, then come and see us at Habito.com. Amazing. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.